Fat Man, and Little Boy. On the 75th anniversary of nuclear weapons, a moral case for their use in ending World War II and the deterrence of great power wars since, and a call to eventually eliminate them. By Michael Shermer, read by the author. Note, this was excerpted in part from my book, The Moral Arc, in the chapter on war. There are illustrations and photographs uh, that go along with this, which you can uh, see in the blog post of this week, the August first week of August, for eSkeptic. Three quarters of a century ago this summer, nuclear weapons altered our civilization forever. On July 16th, the Trinity plutonium bomb detonated with an energy equivalent of 22 kilotons, 22,000 metric tons of TNT, sending a mushroom cloud 39,000 feet into the atmosphere. The explosion left a crater 76 meters wide filled with radioactive glass called trinitite, melted quartz grain sand. It could be heard as far away as El Paso, Texas. On August 6th, the little boy gun-type uranium-235 bomb exploded with an energy equivalent of 16 to 18 kilotons of TNT, flattening 69% of Hiroshima's buildings and killing an estimated 80,000 people and injuring another 70,000. On August 9, the Fat Man plutonium implosion-type bomb with the energy equivalents of 19 to 23 kilotons of TNT, leveled around 44% of Nagasaki, killing an estimated 35,000 to 40,000 people and severely wounding another 60,000. As documented in a memo dated August 10, 1945, if the Japanese had not surrendered, the head of the Manhattan Project, Major General Leslie R. Groves, had another fat man-type plutonium implosion bomb ready to go after August 24th that would have likely killed another 50,000 to 100,000 people. And had the Japanese military hardliners had their way to continue the war into the fall, Groves had three more bombs ready for September and another three for October. President Harry Truman was not exaggerating when he threatened Japan with a rain of ruin from the air the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Truman did agonize about dropping more nukes on Japan. Troubled as he was by the thought of more innocents and non-combatants being killed, he wrestled that decision away from the military. Note Groves's handwritten addendum to his memo that, quote, it is not to be released on Japan without express authority from the president. U.S. presidents have had sole authority to use nuclear weapons ever since. However, further bombings proved unnecessary. On August 15, Emperor Hirohito, against the wishes of some of Japan's military leaders, announced on the radio that Japan would capitulate. On September 2nd, they signed the surrender documents in Tokyo Bay, ending the Second World War. On this 75th anniversary of the summer of the bomb, I want to make the case that their use was necessary to end the war, that their continued existence has acted as a deterrence against another great power war. But 
that we must eliminate them entirely for the long-term existence of our civilization and possibly our species. Since 1945, a cadre of critics have proffered the claim that atomic bombs were unnecessary to bring about the end of World War II, or at least the fat man Nagasaki bomb was superfluous. And thus, this act was immoral, illegal, or even a crime against humanity. Robert Oppenheimer and other physicists, like Leo Szilard, who worked on the Manhattan Project, expressed their reservations. The presidents have known sin, Oppenheimer opined. He went to Truman and confessed, Mr. President, I feel I have blood on my hands. To which the president recalled, I told him the blood was on my hands, so let me worry about that. Truman promptly dismissed Oppenheimer and told Secretary of State Dean Atchison, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. In 1946, the Federal Council of Churches issued this statement, declaring, quote, As American Christians, we are deeply penitent for the irresponsible use already made of the atomic bomb. We are agreed that, whatever be one's judgment of the Warren Principle, the surprise bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are morally indefensible. In 1967, the linguist and contrarian politico Noam Chomsky called the two bombings the most unspeakable crimes in history. More recently, in his History of Genocide titled Worse Than War, the historian Daniel Goldhagen opens his analysis by calling the U.S. President Harry Truman, quote, a mass murderer, because in ordering the use of atomic bombs, he, quote, chose to snuff out the lives of approximately 300,000 men, women, and children. Goldhagen opines that it is hard to understand how any right-thinking person could fail to call slaughtering, unthreatening Japanese mass murder. Goldhagen defines genocide broadly enough to equate it with mass murder without ever defining what exactly that means. In morally equating Harry Truman with Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Pol Pot, Goldhagen allows himself to be constrained by the categorical thinking that prevents one from discerning the different kinds, levels, and motives for large-scale military violence. By this reasoning, nearly every act that kills a large number of people could be considered genocidal because there are only two categories, mass murder and non-mass murder. By contrast, continuous thinking allows us to distinguish the differences between types of mass killing. Some scholars define genocide as one-sided killing by armed people of unarmed people. Their context during a state war, civil war, or ethnic cleansing. The motivations, termination of hostilities or extermination of a people. And quantities, hundreds to millions, along a sliding scale. In 1946, the Polish jurist Raphael Lemkin created the term genocide and defined it as, quote, a conspiracy to exterminate national, religious, or racial groups. That same year, the UN General Assembly defined genocide as, quote, a denial of the right of existence of an entire human group. More recently, in 1994, the highly respected philosopher Stephen Katz 
define genocide as the actualization of the intent, however successfully carried out, to murder in its totality any national, ethnic, racial, religious, political, social, gender, or economic group. By these definitions, the dropping of fat man and little boy were not acts of genocide. The difference between Truman and the others is in the context and motivation of the act. In their genocidal actions against targeted people, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot had as their objective the total elimination of a group. The killing would only stop when every last pursued person was exterminated, or if the perpetrators were stopped or defeated. Truman's goal in dropping the bombs was to end the war with Japan, which it did, not to eliminate the Japanese people, which it didn't. That the U.S. provided considerable financial, personnel, and material support to help rebuild Japan into a world economic power puts the lie to the eliminationist accusation. More broadly, if we ground morality in the survival and flourishing of sentient beings, by that measure, then not only did Fat Man and Little Boy end the war and stop the killing, they saved lives, very probably millions of lives, both Japanese and American. My father, Richard Shermer, was possibly one such survivor. During the Second World War, he served aboard the USS Wren, a Fletcher-class destroyer assigned to protect aircraft carriers and other large capital ships from Japanese submarines and from kamikaze planes on what was called anti-aircraft radar picket watch. His ship was so attacked several times, but sustained no major damage. The Wren was part of the larger fleet that was working its way toward Japan, escorting the carriers whose planes were bombarding the Japanese homeland in preparation for the planned invasion. My father told me that everyone on board dreaded that day because they had heard of the horrific carnage resulting from the invasion of just two tiny islands held by the Japanese, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. If that was any indication of what was to come with a full-scale invasion, the contemplation of it was almost too much to bear. During the invasion of Iwo Jima, they were approximately... 26,000 American casualties that included 6,821 dead in the 36-day battle. How fiercely did the Japanese defend that little volcanic rock 700 miles from Japan? Of the 22,060 Japanese soldiers assigned to fight to the bitter end, only 216 survived. A subsequent battle for Okinawa only 340 miles from the Japanese mainland, was fought even more ferociously, resulting in a staggering body count of 240,931 dead, including 77,166 Japanese soldiers, 14,009 American soldiers, plus an additional 149,193 Japanese civilians living on the island who either died fighting or committed suicide rather than let themselves be captured. With an estimated 2.3 million Japanese soldiers and 28 million Japanese civilian militia prepared to defend their island nation to the death, 
it was clear to all what an invasion of the Japanese mainland would entail. It is from these cold hard facts that Truman's advisors estimated that between 250,000 and 1 million American lives would be lost in an invasion of Japan. General Douglas MacArthur estimated that there would be a 22 to 1 ratio of Japanese to American deaths, which translates to a minimum death toll of 5.5 million Japanese. By comparison, cold as it may seem, the body count from both atomic bombs, about 200,000 to 300,000, was a bargain. In any case, if Truman hadn't ordered the bombs dropped, General Curtis LeMay and his fleet of B-29 bombers would have continued pummeling Tokyo and other Japanese cities into rubble. When asked to predict when the war would end based on his bombing program, LeMay said September 1st because that was when there would be nothing left of Japan to bomb. The death toll from conventional bombing would have been just as high as that produced by the two atomic bombs, if not higher. Previous mass bombing raids have produced Hiroshima-level death rates, and it is likely that more than just two cities would have been destroyed before the Japanese surrendered. Compare, for example, Little Boy's energy equivalent of 16,000 to 19,000 tons of TNT to the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey estimate that this was the equivalent of 220 B-29s carrying 1,200 tons of incendiary bombs, 400 tons of high-explosive bombs, and 500 tons of anti-personnel fragmentation bombs, with an equivalent number of casualties. In fact, on the night of March 9-10, 1945, 279 B-29s dropped 1,665 tons of bombs on Tokyo, leveling 15.8 square miles of the city, killing 88,000 people, injuring another 41,000, and leaving another million homeless. These facts also help refute the claim that the alternative scenario of dropping an atomic bomb on an uninhabited island or bay to demonstrate its destructive force would have worked to convince the Japanese to surrender. Given that they refused to capitulate even after numerous cities were obliterated by conventional bombs and Hiroshima was erased from the map by an atomic bomb, it seems unlikely this more benign strategy would have worked. On balance, then, dropping the atomic bombs was the least destructive of the options on the table. Although we wouldn't want to call it a moral act, it was in the context of the time the least immoral act by the criteria of lives saved. That said, we should also recognize that the several hundred thousand killed is still a colossal loss of life. The fact that the invisible killer of radiation continued its effects long after the bombings should dissuade us from ever using such weapons again. Along that sliding scale of evil, in the context of one of the worst wars in human history that included the singularly destructive Holocaust of six million murdered, it was not Pace Chomsky, the most unspeakable crime in history. Not even close. But it was an event in the annals of humanity never to be forgotten, and hopefully never to be repeated.
When I was an undergraduate at Pepperdine University in 1974, the father of the hydrogen bomb, Edward Teller, spoke at our campus. His message was that deterrence works. At the time, I remember thinking, like so many politicos were saying, yeah, but a single slip-up is all it takes. Popular films such as Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove reinforced the point. But the blunder never came, and the close calls were kept secret for decades. In the game-theoretic strategy of mutual assured destruction, MAD, Deterrence works because neither side has anything to gain by initiating a first strike against the other. The retaliatory capability of both is such that a first strike would most likely lead to the utter annihilation of both countries, along with much of the rest of the world. It's not mad, proclaimed Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara. Mutual assured destruction is the foundation of deterrence. Nuclear weapons have no military utility whatsoever, excepting only to deter one's opponent from their use, which means you should never, never, never initiate their use against a nuclear-equipped opponent. If you do, it's suicide. The logic of deterrence was first articulated in 1946 by the American military strategist Bernard Brody in his appropriately titled book, The Absolute Weapon in which he noted the break in history that atomic weapons brought with their development. Quote, Thus far, the chief purpose of our military establishment has been to win wars. From now on, its chief purpose must be to avert them. It can have almost no other purpose. As Dr. Strangelove explained in Stanley Kubrick's classic Cold War film, Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. That enemy, of course, must know that you have at the ready such destructive devices. And that is why, quote, the whole point of a doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret. Dr. Strangelove was a black comedy that parodied Mad by showing what can happen when things go terribly wrong. In this case, when General Jack D. Ripper becomes unhinged at the thought of communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. And he orders a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union. Given this unfortunate incident, and knowing that the Ruskies know all about it and will therefore retaliate, General Buck Turgenson pleads with the president to go all out and launch a full first strike. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed tops, uh, depending on the breaks. This isn't far off real projected casualties. Kubrick was a student of Cold War strategy. As in 1957, the Strategic Air Command, SAC, estimated that Between 360 and 525 million casualties would be inflicted in the first week of a nuclear exchange with the Soviet bloc. In 1968, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara gave these figures for MAD to work. Quote, In the case of the Soviet Union, I would judge that a capability on our part to destroy, say, one-fifth to one-fourth of their population and 
one half of her industrial capacity, would serve as an effective deterrent. With a population of the time of about 128 million, this translates into 25 to 32 million dead. A 1979 report from the Office of Technology Assessment for the U.S. Congress entitled The Effects of Nuclear War estimated that 155 to 165 million Americans would die in an all-out Soviet first strike, unless people made use of existing shelters near their homes, reducing fatalities to only 110 to 120 million. The population of the U.S. at the time was 225 million, so the estimated percent that would be killed ranged from 49% to 73%. Deterrence has worked, so far. No nuclear weapon has been detonated in a conflict of any kind in 75 years, but it would be foolish to think of deterrence as a permanent solution. As long ago as 1795, in an essay titled Perpetual Peace, Immanuel Kant worked out what such deterrence ultimately leads to. Quote, A war, therefore, which might cause the destruction of both parties at once, would permit the conclusion of a perpetual peace only upon the vast burial ground of the human species. Kant's book title came from an innkeeper sign featuring a cemetery, not the type of perpetual peace most of us strive for. Deterrence acts as only a temporary solution to the Habesian temptation to strike first, also called the security dilemma in which a nation arming in defense triggers other nations to also arm in defense, allowing both leviathans to go about their business in relative peace, settling for small proxy wars which themselves have been in decline for decades. In the long run, we need to work toward a world free of nuclear weapons. The risks of accidents or a deranged Dr. Strangelove-type character Triggering a nuclear exchange is too high for a mad deterrent strategy to be a permanent solution to the security dilemma it was invented to solve. Authors such as Richard Rhodes in his Nuclear Tetralogy, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, Dark Sun, Arsenals of Folly, and The Twilight of the Bombs, and Eric Schlosser in Command and Control, leave readers with vertigo knowing how many close calls there have been. To name but a few, the jettisoning of a Mark IV atomic bomb in British Columbia in 1950, the crash of a B-52 carrying two Mark 39 nuclear bombs in North Carolina, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Able Archer 83 exercise in Western Europe that the Soviets misread as the buildup to a nuclear strike against them, the Titan II missile explosion in Damascus, Arkansas, that narrowly avoided eradicating the entire city off the map, and Stanislav Petrov's decision not to trigger a retaliatory strike against the U.S. based on reports from the Soviet early warning satellite system of incoming ballistic missiles. It is not for nothing that Petrov is known as the man who saved the world. Thus. In the long run, we must get to nuclear zero. But in the short run, there are so many hurdles that few think we are anywhere near such a lofty goal. In two episodes of my Science Salon podcast, 
Fred Kaplan, the national security journalist and author of several books on nuclear weapons, and William J. Perry, Secretary of Defense under President Clinton and a staunch advocate for eliminating nuclear weapons, both told me that they did not think this could happen anytime soon, even while their books outline how it could be done. In the moral arc, I summarized the consensus by experts on the most important steps to take to reduce the risk of nuclear weapons and to work toward a world free of them, including 1. Enact a no-first-use policy. 2. Take all weapons off, launch on warning. 3. Increase the warning and decision times for launching a retaliatory strike. 4. Remove from the President the sole authority to launch nuclear weapons. 5. Uphold non-proliferation agreements. 6. Widen the taboo from using nuclear weapons to owning them. 7. Increased economic interdependence. 8. Expand democratic governance. 9. Reduce spending on nuclear weapons. And 10. Continue the disarmament of existing nuclear weapons. To that end, it is encouraging to see the decline in the total number of nuclear warheads to around 16,000 from the peak of around 70,000 in 1986, as visualized in the figure in the excerpt. I should note that some security scholars, along with many political theorists and leaders, think that the path to peace is more deterrence through more and better nuclear weapons. President Trump, for example, insists on renovating our agent nuclear weapon systems to the tune of $1.2 trillion between 2017 and 2046, an upgrade program he inherited from President Obama. And despite winning the Nobel Peace Prize for working toward nuclear non-proliferation, Obama nevertheless backed off from initiating a no-first-use policy under pressure from our NATO allies, who were worried that Russian saber-rattling and border expansion might be encouraged if an escalation from conventional to nuclear weapons was no longer on the defense table. Similarly, the late political scientist Kenneth Waltz thought that allowing Iran to go nuclear would bring stability to the Middle East because, quote, in no other region of the world does a lone, unchecked nuclear state exist. It is Israel's nuclear arsenal not Iran's desire for one, that has contributed most to the current crisis. Power, after all, begs to be balanced. Uh, Except for when it doesn't, as in the post-1991 period, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the unipolar dominance of the United States. No other medium-sized power rose to fill the vacuum. No rising power started wars of conquest to consolidate more power. And the only other candidate, China, has remained war-free for almost four decades. Given Iran's outlier status in the international system and their avowed promise to wipe off the map, Israel, anyone who would join a Fair Play for Nuclear Iran committee has lost their moral compass. This all just shows how difficult it's going to be to get to a world without nukes. Nevertheless, we have to try. One more statistic is sobering in this regard. As noted by the anti-nuclear scientist and activist David Barish, 
The U.S. has a triad of nuclear weapons, land, missiles, air, bombers, and sea, submarines. A single Trident sub carries 20 nuclear-tipped missiles, each one of which has eight independently targetable warheads of about 465 kilotons, or about 30 times the destructive power of Little Boy. So, one sub packs the equivalent of 4,800 Hiroshima's. That's 20 times 8 times 30. And we have 18 Trident submarines, or the equivalent of 86,400 Hiroshima's. In the words of President Obama during a briefing about our nuclear capability, let's stipulate that this is all insane. The use of nuclear weapons for both ending wars and deterring them is a 20th century phenomenon that can be phased out for the new century. As the political scientist Christopher Fettweiss notes in his book Dangerous Times, despite the popularity of such intuitive notions as the balance of power, based on a small number of non-generalizable cases from the past that are in any case no longer applicable to the present, so-called clashes of civilization like the world wars of the 20th century are extremely unlikely to happen in the highly interdependent world of the 21st century. In fact, Vetvice shows, never in history has such a high percentage of the world's population lived in peace. Conflicts of all forms have been steadily dropping since the early 1990s, and even terrorism can bring states together in international cooperation to combat a common enemy. The abolition of nuclear weapons is a complex and difficult puzzle that has been studied extensively by scholars and scientists for over half a century. The many problems and permutations of getting from here to there are legion, and there is no single surefire pathway to zero. Nevertheless, it is a soluble problem, and humans are nothing if not innovative problem solvers. I do not believe that the deterrence trap is one from which we can never extricate ourselves, and the remaining threats should direct us toward nuclear zero sooner rather than later. In the meantime, minimum is the best we can hope for, given the complexities of international relations. But given enough time, as Shakespeare poetically observed, time's glory is to calm contending kings, to unmask falsehood and bring truth to light, to stamp the seal of time in aged things, to wake the morn and sentinel the night, to slay the tiger that doth live by slaughter, to cheer the plowman with increasing crops, and waste huge stones with little water drops. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Shermer.